Now, brothers and sisters, it's time to take out God's Word and look at it together. If you've got a Bible, or if you want to take one out of the pew in front of you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we look at God's gifts to us of marriage and singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now today, you're going to see one of the main reasons why I preach through books of the Bible, straight through. Because if you preach like that, pretty soon you're forced to preach on things that you would maybe not preach about if you chose a topic each week, or things that you might avoid. You're going to see here in just a moment, you can't get around one of the main purposes of our text today is Paul talks about physical intimacy. And this is not exactly something that I would choose if I was choosing topics each week to preach on. But the the beautiful thing, in God's wisdom, when you preach through books of the Bible, straight through, you you can't skip over things. Because all of a sudden, everybody's going to be like, wait a second, you you hit all those other verses, and you, you skipped over these, and rightfully so. But not only that, is the congregation gets a healthy diet of God's Word instead of the preacher's passions or the preacher's hobby horses. You get a healthy, well-rounded diet of God's Word. Today's passage will show us the gospel reaches into every area of our lives, even the private ones. There is no corner of your heart or your life that Jesus does not claim as His. He wants to sanctify every single inch of your life. There is no part of us that we hold back from Him and say, no, you don't touch this part. I give you everything except for this. No, He wants it all. But we also know that if we submit to His ways, we find that it actually gives us greater happiness and a greater satisfaction than we could have ever found in doing things our way. And so let's look at the text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 9. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, just a quick remark on verse 1 before we get into the the main portion of the text. Look at verse 1 again, where he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. When you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you can deduce that Paul has already written one letter to the Corinthian church before 1 Corinthians. He's already written one letter to them. We don't have access to that letter. It's been lost. It's been 
destroyed in God's wisdom and providence, not preserved. And so we might call that zero Corinthians. But Paul wrote a letter to them, and then they wrote a letter back to him, and now he is writing back to them in 1 Corinthians. Okay, And in that return letter from them to him, they asked about matters like this. And apparently they said something to the effect of, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Your translation might read, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to marry any woman. So we need to move from verse 1 there to the entire passage and what it says about the gift of marriage. I want you to see what Paul says this morning about the gift of marriage, and specifically within marriage, the gift from God to us of physical intimacy within marriage. Now, apparently, according to verse 1, there were some who were thinking and some who were teaching that this is something that should be completely avoided. This is something that should be completely avoided. It's bad in and of itself. Some were teaching that, and some still teach this today. In and of itself, physical intimacy is bad. Now, there are two extremes that we can go to when it comes to physical intimacy. There are two extremes that we can go to, and both are unbiblical. I heard another preacher say it like this one time, and it's always stuck in my mind, so I want to pass that along to you. This is not unique to me, but it's a good way to remember this. Two extremes that you can go to, both unbiblical when it comes to physical intimacy. One is intimacy is God, and the other is intimacy is gross. These are two unbiblical extremes. Let me explain. Intimacy is God on the one end. Okay, This is what our culture is saying, and indeed they're not using the word intimacy because to them that's not what it is, but physical intimacy, it's, it's God, lowercase g, it's everything. We pursue it with all we have. We're obsessed with it. The world says you should be able to pursue physical intimacy with no restrictions, no inhibitions, no rules, no consequences. It's God to our culture. You see this in all kinds of ways. Pornography, birth control, which was invented as a way to make physical intimacy have no consequences. Abortion, no-fault divorce laws. Our culture is obsessed with physical intimacy and the desire to pursue it without any cost, without any consequences, no inhibitions, no restrictions, no rules. Intimacy is God. That's one extreme. But the other extreme that sometimes people in the church go to, is intimacy is gross. We don't speak of this. Not in our families, not in the church. It's the ultimate taboo subject. We don't talk about it. It's a necessary evil for producing children, but we don't talk about it. We avoid it at all costs. And there are many in the church who teach that to be completely committed to God, you must completely avoid that. Marriage and everything. But we've seen the negative effects that that is having for other branches of the church in insisting that their ministers refuse to marry and avoid this at all costs. But we see these are two extremes, unbiblical extremes. Intimacy is not God. Intimacy is not gross. No, it's a gift. It's a gift that God has given to be kept in its proper place, to be enjoyed within its proper restrictions. Intimacy within marriage is a gift that God gives to protect marriages from temptation and infidelity. We see that in our passage. To protect marriages from temptation and infidelity. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 it says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, 
each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You might be thinking, what a horrible reason to get married. No, the Bible's actually very practical. The Bible's actually more practical than we are sometimes. Right? Look at verse 5, at the end of verse 5. He says, don't deprive one another, but if you commit together to abstaining for a time, come back together after a while so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then look at verse 9. He wishes that people could remain single, but he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Part of the purpose of physical intimacy within marriage is to protect us from temptation and infidelity, to keep the marriage faithful and strong for a lifetime. Intimacy is not just about passion between two people who are extremely attracted to one another. That's what the world's telling us it is. But the Bible says there's actually a lot more to it than that. It's also a very practical step in protecting your marriage and remaining faithful to your spouse for a lifetime if you are married. We also see, though, from our passage today, intimacy is not just a gift that God gives to the married couple, but intimacy within marriage is a gift the spouse gives to the other spouse. It's a gift spouses give to one another. When you get married, you give up your authority over your own body, Paul says. Did you notice that? Look back at verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Notice that language, rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So if you are married, your spouse has rights to your body and authority over your body. If you ever intend to get married, your spouse will have rights to your body and authority over your own body. Last week in the end of 1 Corinthians 6, we saw that you are not your own, right? Your body is not your own because God gave it to you and God bought it with a price. And so honor God with your body because it's not just yours, it's God's. But if you're married, there's a whole other level of it. Not only is your body God's, your body is also your spouse's. Your spouse's. Now, think with me for a moment how radical this teaching would have sounded in Paul's day. How radical it would have sounded. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 starts out and says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And everybody in Paul's day was saying, Amen, that's right. Men have authority over women. The woman doesn't have authority, but the man does. And then Paul goes on to say, Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This would have been scandalous. This would have been explosive in Paul's culture. To suggest that the wife has an authority over her husband's body? You see, so many people today claim Christianity is misogynistic and demeaning toward women. But Paul was actually one of the most progressive voices on the high value that God places on women in his culture and in the world of that day, and still is today. Men and women are not valued differently by God himself. They have different roles. They have different 
jobs that God has given them. But Christianity has never been demeaning to women. In fact, it's been radically pro-woman since its inception. It's far from misogynistic and demeaning to women. Look also at verse 5 with me. In verse 5 there, Paul tells married couples, do not deprive one another when it comes to physical intimacy. You may abstain together by agreement for a time to seek the Lord on a matter, right? But even when you do that, make sure you remember to come back together soon so that Satan will not tempt you because Satan is always looking, brothers and sisters, he is always looking to use our physical desires to tempt us toward immorality. For those of you who are single, don't think that when you get married, the temptation toward sexual immorality goes away. No, it does not. It's a battle you have to fight whether single or married. So he says, do not deprive one another. Now when he says that, we understand that there are seasons of life that make this different and difficult. Paul doesn't speak here about times where health issues arise. Paul doesn't speak about when old age changes things a great deal. But he does speak about it. This is part of marriage. And the Bible is extremely practical. And I, for one, am so thankful that we have blunt and straightforward words about practical areas of our lives like this in Scripture. This is not below God. This is not below the glory of Scripture. This is part of life. We learn from straightforward stuff like this that Jesus wants to be Lord of every area of our lives. Every single one. Jesus is Lord of every single area of your life, including the bedroom. There's no part of our lives that we hold back from Christ. He wants to sanctify it all. Now, when we read verse 5 here, do not deprive one another, one important implication of this for married couples is that intimacy is not to be used as a weapon in marriage. He says, do not deprive one another. Intimacy is not to be used as a weapon in marriage. For example, withholding it from your spouse if you are upset with them. Or using it as a way to motivate the other spouse toward your own ends. Intimacy is not a way for us to get what we want in our marriage. It was never intended to be that at all. The world tells us physical intimacy is exactly that. It's getting what you want. It's satisfying your own desires. But God says physical intimacy within marriage is a way to serve and love your spouse. This is yet another way we see that God's intention for physical intimacy is radically different than the distorted message that you are receiving from our secular culture. Brothers and sisters, we are getting messages from our culture on this. Parents, your kids are going to learn about this one way or the other. Are they going to learn from you and from the church and from God's Word? Or are they going to learn from the television and music? Where are we going to learn about the way that God intended this to be done? It's not going to happen in the church and in our families if we act like this is something we never talk about. This is the ultimate taboo subject. No, we have to. And it's not just like we talk about it one time. No, we have to have conversations about this. God's intention for physical intimacy is radically different than the distorted message you are receiving 
from the secular culture because with God, physical intimacy is an act of self-sacrificing love and service of the other person to please them. That's the Christian life. It's not just intimacy. That's the Christian life, right? The Christian life is sacrificing our own needs and wants for the good of others, serving and giving. It's the same with physical intimacy within marriage. And so we see that this is a gift that God gives to married people. But our passage is not only about marriage. It's also about singleness. And singleness is a gift as well. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, you know from verse 8, what he means is, he wishes that everyone could be single like he is. All right? That's what he says at the end of verse 8, to remain single as I am. But going on in verse 7, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness, just like marriage, is a gift from God. Now, a couple questions that we need to ask based on that. Number one, how do I know if I have the gift of singleness? How can I know if I have the gift of singleness? Very easy solution to this question, okay? Very easy answer, very easy way to tell. Here it is. Ready? Are you single right now? You have the gift of singleness. Are you married right now? You have the gift of marriage. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, we have always thought that the gift of singleness refers only to a capacity to cope with the challenges of it, right? But that's not the way Paul is using it here, at least not only. It's not only a capacity to cope with the challenges. You see, we, we've kind of always thought about the gift of singleness kind of like a superpower, right, that God gives to the very rare person, right? So that person, well, they, they've got the gift of singleness, but that's really rare. It's kind of like a superpower. Only certain people have it, and I don't have it, of course, so... You know, it's like a superpower the way we've thought of it. That's not what it is. It's something that God gives you for a time. Even marriage is something that God has given to some people for a time. It's a situation in life. It's a season that God has given to you. And if God gives you a season of life, he's also going to give you the capacity to live faithfully in it. Does that make sense? If God calls you to live a certain way, he's going to give you the strength and the ability and the capacity to live faithfully to Him in that season. So it's a season of life, not just a capacity, but a season. So if you're single right now, you've got the gift of singleness. So those who are single and not married right now, they cannot say, well, I just don't have the gift of singleness, and so it's okay if I sin with my sexuality. Because I just don't have the gift of singleness. I'm just waiting to be married. So until then, since I don't have the gift of singleness, I, it's okay if I just give in to this temptation. No. God's called you to singleness in this time of your life. And God has given you the strength and the capacity and the power to live faithfully in it. The only times that we don't do that is when we walk away from God's will and away from the power that God has given us in His Spirit. And in the same way, think about this. It's a gift. It's the gift is, is the time that God has given you, the season of life that God has given you. In the same way, those who are married cannot sit there and say, well, I just don't have the gift of marriage, so it's okay if I get divorced. It's okay if we give up on this thing. We just don't have the gift of marriage. No, you can't say that. That excuse doesn't work because it's not a capacity. 
It's the gift of whatever season he has given you at that time. And if he gives you the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness, he will also give you what you need to walk faithfully in it while you are called to it. Some of us, brothers and sisters, some of us have yet to be married and are currently single. Some of us are currently married. Some of us have been single for almost an entire lifetime and will remain single for our entire lives. And still others have re-entered singleness after losing a spouse. And so this teaching on singleness applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us have to perk up and hear this and understand this. Because we will all be there one way or the other at one point or another. Now, here's the second question that I've always asked of this passage. Is using the language of gift, the gift of singleness... Is this language just a way to pander to single people and make them feel better about the fact that they're not married? This is what I used to think, right? When I heard people talk about this, Christians talk about the gift of singleness, I thought that was a way for married people to pander to single people and to say, I'm sorry you're not able to be married yet. So we're we're just going to say you've got a gift, right? It's a way to pander to people. No, not at all. This is not a, a fake Gift. This is not just language to help people feel better about being second best. The, the church, the American church, not just Columbia Christian Church, I'm talking about the church in America, the church has done a disservice to single people by acting like marriage is the ultimate ideal. And it's not. The church has done a disservice to single people by constantly acting like marriage is just the ultimate ideal when it really isn't. And always asking single adults, when are you going to get married? Lord willing, we will have an entire sermon early next year on on Paul's words on singleness. Because if you go through the rest of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see that Paul's got a lot more to say about singleness. So Lord willing, early next year, I think, we're going to have an entire sermon dedicated to Paul's teaching on singleness. But for now, realize this. Jesus never married. Our Lord Jesus was never married, and He lived the most full and most complete life of any human being that has ever lived. What does that tell us? It tells us you don't have to experience marriage to live a full and complete life. Jesus never married. Singleness is not bad. It is not second best. In fact, later in this chapter, Paul will talk about Numerous ways in which singleness is preferable to marriage for service in the kingdom of God. Preferable. And we've always treated it as some second-class citizen thing. Singleness is not second best. It's not bad. You're following in the steps of our Lord Jesus when you live a single life to the glory of God. We take up our cross and follow Jesus whether we're single or we're married. The single person has to get up every day, take up his cross and deny himself in all kinds of practical ways and follow Christ. The married person also has to get up every day, take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 with me, still on this topic of singleness. In verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. This right here, verse 8, is another example 
of something that would have come across as scandalously radical and progressive in Paul's day. I mean, completely radical and progressive. In Paul's day, in that period of time, biblical times, an unmarried woman was seen as socially dangerous and promiscuous because she refused to settle down. An unmarried woman who refused to settle down with another man was considered dangerous to society and to married men. And what Paul is doing here is Paul's challenging that cultural norm on women. He's yet again asserting God's high view of women and saying, there are women that I, I hope they can remain single and live for the glory of God. Because it's not about what society thinks of you. It's about what God thinks of you. Paul has a high view of women. The Bible has a high view of women. Yes, elsewhere we will see Paul talking about the roles of men and women. Elsewhere you'll see the same Apostle Paul saying that women are, are not to be preachers or elders in the church because God has given certain roles for men and certain roles for women. But Paul and God and the Bible, they, this, this, there is no low view of women that can be found in the Scriptures. It's a very superficial reading of Scripture that claims the Bible is anti-women. Many people who, who say that about the Bible have not read the thing and are just looking for a way to challenge it. But in all of this talk of singleness, the implication in this passage, the implication here for singleness is that Singleness requires celibacy. Singleness requires celibacy. Refraining from physical intimacy because physical intimacy with another person is reserved for marriage. And so the married person takes up their cross and the single person takes up their cross. And God will give the power and the ability to live faithfully to anyone that he calls to either situation for however long he calls them to it. The gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. I want to leave you with this. Marriage is not ultimate, you guys. Marriage is not ultimate. For those who are married, do not for a second think that you are any more blessed than a single person in God's eyes. Your marriage is actually a pointer to something else. We learn from Ephesians 5 that God's primary reason for creating marriage is to show the world a picture of Christ and the church. That's what marriage is for. To show the world a picture of Christ and the church. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that marriage has only been instituted for this age and not the age to come. We will not be married in eternity. Yes, I believe that we will have deep and close relationships with those that we were blessed to be deep and close to here. But Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven. There will be no marriage in eternity. It's a temporary gift that actually points to an eternal reality. A temporary gift that points to an eternal reality. So married people, stay faithful. Utilize God's gift of physical intimacy to stay faithful to your spouse and be a picture of Christ in the church to the world because Jesus would never cheat on his bride. Jesus will never cheat on his bride, the church. So use God's gift of physical intimacy within marriage to stay faithful to your spouse. Your marriage is about something bigger than marriage. 
It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are single, take heart. Our Lord himself was never married. It does not take marriage to make a satisfying and complete and full life. You can live life to the full just as our Lord did without marriage. You are following in the Lord's footsteps if you wake up every day. and You have not been given the gift of marriage. You've been given the gift of singleness and you take up your cross every day and you deny yourself and you deny one of the urges that God has given you for the glory of God. Every single one of us is doing that, you guys. Single people, you think you're the only ones who have to deny physical urges for the glory of God? Every single person on the earth who calls themselves a Christian is having to do that. You are not alone. Take heart. Do you believe that singleness is a gift? We're not using fake language when we say gift. Do you really believe it's a gift? I'd encourage you to read through the rest of 1 Corinthians 7 and see the high value and the honor that Paul places on singleness for the glory of God in this chapter. It goes against a lot of what we've heard our whole lives, even in the church. There's honor there. There's glory for God to be given there. Take heart. It's a gift, just like marriage is a gift. And so whether you have the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness, Jesus died to give you what you need to live faithfully and obediently in those seasons of life. The cross of Jesus Christ was not just about forgiveness, but it's also about Jesus dying so that we could have the power to obey the things that God calls us to obey, the power to live faithfully. The power to live a righteous life where we did not have the power before. The power of the Holy Spirit in us, making us fit for heaven and giving us the ability and the capacity to deal with the struggles of whatever season God has called us to. The cross, Jesus died for that. Here in just a moment, we're going to take a few moments and we're going to have some moments of silent prayer. And during this time, like we do each week, we're asking every single person in here and every single person who's watching online to take some time to reckon with God, to respond to God, to what He's laid on your heart, to respond to His Word to you this morning. His Word is the same to all of us, and yet His Word is different to each one of us. What did He lay on your heart just now? What do you need to say to Him? What do you need to ask Him for? What do you need to confess? Let's respond to God individually, silently, for a few moments, and then we'll come back and we'll have a time of public response.